So yesterday, my wife and I and our amazing son, JJ, were driving back from California. So we left at like 4 o'clock p.m. It's like a five-hour, probably a six-hour drive with the kid in the back seat. Um, so JJ is screaming. It's past his bedtime. He normally goes to bed at like 7 o'clock. He's still screaming at 9. And I had this bright idea like, babe, how about I just practice my sermon? Maybe he'll fall asleep. Maybe I can get him to sleep doing that. <laughs> but it did not work. So you guys should not fall asleep in church today because JJ did not stop screaming. He might have actually started screaming a little bit more. So maybe you'll get mad. <laughs> Who knows? Um, but the uh, title of the sermon today is Coming Back to Jesus. Um, and I had an amazing time writing it. So as you know or don't know, our senior pastor, Josh, is sick. He has COVID, unfortunately. And I got the call Friday morning while I was in California with Becca and her family sitting on the beach. Like, hey, you need to preach Sunday. No, I wasn't on the beach, but I was in California. Um, but I got the call that I needed to preach on Sunday. I'm like, oh, dang. You know, and, and you see me, I am a person who likes to prepare. So anytime you hear me speak, I speak two weeks in advance. Like I am prepping my sermon at least two weeks in advance. Like if I can prefer it, at least four weeks. I'm not the pastor who is writing the sermon on a Saturday night getting ready for Sunday. That's just not me. However, I think one of the very nice things the very few nice things about writing it so soon is that it gives more room for the Spirit to speak. Because you see, when I prepare, when I take time to write the sermon, sometimes my study or my knowledge or wisdom or planning can intentionally get in the way of the Spirit working and leave the Spirit less room to work. So, I guess you can kind of say that I'm winging it. You know, it's bringing me back to high school and college when I was taking tests. Like, I was a champ at winging it and still getting good grades. So I wasn't sure what I should talk about or what I wanted to talk about today. But I just got overwhelmed with the feeling that I should just be real. Because it is so easy to put on this look of having everything all together. And who wants a pastor who is perfect? Who wants a pastor that has everything together? I, I don't. <laughs> you know, I've been thinking about, a lot about spiritual growth. What does that look like in my life? How do my actions show it? If you weren't here last week, Josh continued our series on discipleship and the cost of discipleship. Discipleship. Like, that's a word that we use a lot. And sometimes I feel like it can get overused. But what I want you to do right now, I want you to be brutally honest with yourselves. This is the toughest part. I want you to be brutally honest with yourselves. Would you want you discipling yourself? Would you want you discipling yourself? You see, we as Christians, we're called to be disciples. 
that we need to be bringing people up around us who are new in the faith, are maturing in the faith, and walk with them. You know, I'm not saying that we need to be perfect because no one is perfect, but I want you to ask yourself, would you want you discipling you? Or maybe a better question is, do you want to make a duplicate of yourself? So if you haven't met my son already, then there's going to be a picture right up there. That is my son, JJ. With my wife rolling her eyes, most of the time people will say that JJ is my mini-me, that he looks like me, that one day he has a very high chance as he grows up that he will have this good-looking figure. (laughs) But as I look deeper, as a father, as someone who's discipling my kid, do I really want a mini-me version? Man, that was rough. Like, makes me want to cry even thinking about that. Am I happy with where I am at spiritually? Do I trick myself into thinking that I'm good where I'm at? And you see, I think a lot of us do this very thing. I think it's why in Revelation 3, when the church in Sardis is being addressed, it says this. It should be up on the screen. Revelation 3, 1 through 3. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. I mean, hold up, hold up, hold up. Like, what is John saying there? Like, he's recording what this angel's writing. You know, we can get offended, but you see, this is addressed to the church. That that church has a reputation of being alive, but in reality, they were dead spiritually. That's tough to hear. And you see, the problem is that sometimes we do not want to be honest with ourselves. We want to look good, we want to have a good reputation. We don't want to know the truth. We lie to ourselves sometimes. I mean, if we're going to be honest, who feels comfortable to question your walk with God? Some? A few? None at all? Some of you have not had a sincere heart-to-heart moment with Jesus in a very long time. And you see, when we keep on trying to build this reputation, we are trying to do more and more and measure up and get busy, and that causes anxiety, depression, stress. And you see, we assume certain things because we have a reputation of being alive. Because God says, I don't care what everyone thinks about you or what everyone assumes about you. I know the truth about you. And you see, I fall into this trap of deception myself sometimes. We can have a reputation and very few people feel comfortable calling us out on it. Pride, deceit, fears. Pride doesn't let you say that you don't get it or that you need help. 
So for those of you that don't know, my wife is a physical therapist, AKA what that means is my wife strongly encourages me to be physically active. Um, I'm not the physically active type of guy. I like to chill, watch my TV shows. I don't like hiking. Like I have a four-wheeled vehicle, so I don't have to hike. Uh, but you see, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But with having a wife that's a physical therapist, one of the nice things is that she can correct me on my posture when I'm working out. So you see, like when you're lifting, lifting is all about correct posture. You see, if you don't lift correctly, you either have a very high chance of getting injured or you're not working out as much as you're capable of working out and tearing and building those muscles down or up. So I'm here at the gym. As you could tell, it was a long time ago because I do not look very fit. So I, I'm at the gym. You know, I'm uh, getting my workout on. I have some weights. They're very light, not very heavy. So I'm doing my tricep workouts. For those of you who don't know, your tricep's back here. I did have my wife confirm that I'm giving you the correct information. But I'm doing my tricep workouts, you know, feeling pretty confident. And I look through the door, and this dude walks in. And he is huge, like ripped. Like I can just imagine like he had a 10-pack if that was possible. I don't think that's possible, but like this dude was fit. And of course, he walks all the way and sits right down next to me. I'm like, man, I, I need to leave. And I'm here doing like my little 15-pound dumbbell, and he walks over and picks up a 50-pounder, and he starts doing bicep curls. I, I look over at him, I think I lost my man points immediately. It's like, I'm just chilling, trying to do my thing, not look at him as creepy as possible, just kind of like an awe of like, oh man, that dude is a specimen. <laughs> I can only dream of looking like that. So then he puts the 50-pound dumbbells down that were his warm-up, I might add, his warm-up. So he goes over to the dumbbell station, picks up 80-pounders. So he sits down, and he starts lifting, 80-pounders. And because my wife is a physical therapist, I know that what he is doing right now is not the correct workout. You know, see, he's lifting these dumbbells and using his back and the shoulders to get that 80 pounds up. I'm like, man, he's, he's not working out correctly. So what do I do as the husband of a physical therapist? I walk over to him and be like, yo, bro, you're doing that workout wrong. No, no, I did not do that. I did not do that. You see, I just kept on minding my business because that dude would not have listened to a slightly overweight dad bod rando guy coming up to him and telling him he did his workout wrong. And you see, this is sometimes how we end up spiritually. We can focus so hard on building our reputation and looking the part of a Christian that sometimes it makes you unapproachable. Sometimes it makes you ignore other people who you would think are weaker or newer in their faith than you. And as we try to build up our reputation, we start trying to do more and measure up. 
No one talks about this, but there is so much anxiety right now in our life, in our world. So much depression. Wanting to do this, wanting to do that, it goes against everything that we read. And you know what Jesus would be saying right now? Jesus would be saying, follow me. Lay your life down. I'm going to make you lay down. What do we study? I'll protect you from enemies. Valley in the shadow of death. Lay down your life, stuff to drink. I don't have to fear anything. I've got you. I've got you. I've got you. And then here we are. These sheep that are just all stressed out and worried about our image. Somehow we are just stressed about this, stressed about that, worried about that, anxious, and it says, don't be anxious about anything. Don't you get this? I am the vine. And in John 15, Jesus talks about this vine. John 15, 1 through 8. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples." You see, people are dead and not alive. When people try to build up this fake facade, they are looking for fruit elsewhere. Other things other than the vine are providing them nutrients. And John, uh, I believe it's four, or no, in John 15 he says, I'm the vine, the true vine. And, you know, it kind of parallels John 4, 4, where Jesus is with the woman at the well. If you know that story, Jesus comes he sees the woman at the well. Jesus is like, hey, I'm thirsty. Can you get me something to drink? And they have this conversation. And then he goes on to say that the water that he offers will quench her thirst forever. You see, it's the same concept here. You want to bear fruit? You want to grow in your faith? All you have to do is be connected to the vine. It's so simple. I am the branch I just needed to be connected to you. A branch just doesn't say, hey, I'm gonna go out, peace out, I'm gonna go make my own fruit. No, branch can't do that. Branch can't just go away and produce something. It needs the vine. And God will prune you along the way. All I'm asking for is this. Simplify this. We overcomplicate things and stress ourselves out, then deceive and lie and pretend we are something else. God is the vine and the shepherd. You are the sheep and the branches. Abide in me and you will produce fruit. Abide in me and you will last. It's a promise. 
And you see, Satan is going to come along and try to distract you. He's going to try and separate you from that vine. Imagine a branch unattached to the vine trying to make fruit on its own. All you have to be is connected to him. And you see, like, these are promises. Like, Jesus didn't say, like, I'm only going to give you this water that will last forever if I like you. That's not what Jesus said. He didn't say, like, man, as long as you are perfect, I will help you bear fruit. What he said was, is if you drink from me, you will never thirst. When you are attached to me, you will bear fruit. It's not that complicated. But unfortunately, we make it complicated. And there are a couple reasons why. You see, first, we have all most likely been lied to in our life. Raise your hand if you've been lied to. If you haven't been lied to, you are very lucky. But it's not fun. We don't like being deceived. And you see, even though Jesus is perfect, sometimes we push our experiences on him and cause us to doubt the promises that he has made us. Because we have been hurt in this life, because promises have been broken in our life, sometimes we push that image on God and think, man, I've been lied to you before. My promises have been broken before. Maybe I shouldn't trust God. Or maybe you're someone who grew up with a parent who wasn't the best parent. Or maybe not even a parent having been around in your life. And you push that image on God and be like, man, what kind of father can God be if I experience this in my life? And another thing that we do is we compare. You're not going to be as good as him. You're not going to be as good as her. Our own pride gets in the way. Messages from the world get in the way. And even messages from believers can get in the way and tear us apart from the vine and cause us to stop trusting in something so simple. Now I want you to think really hard. Do you remember when you were a kid and didn't have the pressures of this world on you? When you didn't care about your image, you didn't care what people thought about you? You know, when we were amazed at the stories of David and Goliath and Daniel and the lions and Moses, and the Exodus. You see, as kids, we are more apt to believe. As kids, we are more apt to be amazed. And maybe that's why Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew 18, 3, to become like little children in order to get into the kingdom of God. That's a whole other sermon in itself. But it seems like the older you get, it's almost like your faith gets chopped a little more and more and more as you age. Pressure and expectation can kill you. And you see, the plan was is that we would abide in Christ. We would ask him for fruit, and he would give us fruit. It's a guarantee. I don't have to do a whole lot. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. Now, I really love Francis Chan. I don't know if any of you ever heard of Francis Chan. He's one of my secret mentors, pastors. And in one of his sermons, he, like, gut-checked me. Like, I don't know if you've ever been, like, punched in the stomach and, like, the air kind of left and you're, like, gasping. But, like, Francis Chan did that to me. And in one of his sermons, he was talking about Moses and the burning bush and putting that story into our context now. He talked about how many people either don't know Jesus as well as they think they do, 
or they are too focused on the leaders of Jesus and not on Jesus himself. He went on to say, I wish they really knew Jesus. I just don't get it. It just seems they know a lot about him. They talk about him like an outsider looking in instead of having been with him. I feel like the people are happy to hear from Moses when they could actually walk up the mountains themselves and be with God and be connected to him. You see, sometimes we can get so into Moses that we don't realize that we can walk up that mountain ourselves and experience God. There's something amazing when you just walk up. It's just you and God right there in that moment. Movements of God start when the founder knows Jesus deeply. Movements die when followers only know the founder. So I have a question for you. What is the best moment of your life? Think hard. What is the best moment of your life? Is the best moment of your life a time when you spent with Jesus? If I'm going to be honest with you, a pastor... I've been thinking about this question since I started writing this sermon on Friday. I didn't want to ask this question. I wanted to ignore it. When I think of the best moment of my life, it was seeing my wonderful, amazing, beautiful, strong wife give birth to my son who I love dearly. Is it a bad best moment of my life? No, it's not a bad one. But should it be the best moment of my life? Probably not, if I'm going to be honest. I've probably been focused too much on someone bringing God to me versus me going up and experiencing him myself. I've probably been focusing too much on someone bringing God to me versus me going up and experiencing God myself. I mean, we have sermons all around us. We have amazing speakers all around us. It's easy to just listen to sermon after sermon and think that's how you're gonna grow spiritually, that that's how you grow your relationship with God. That we're cool with Moses coming down the mountain and just giving us this word from God when we literally can walk up that same mountain and experience Jesus right in front of us and have that moment with God because what is the best moment of your life? Is it a time that you've had with Jesus? And unfortunately, mine's not. And I'm a pastor. And it's because of this. I have probably been focused too much on someone bringing God to me versus me going and experiencing God myself. Because we all have that ability. And thankfully in Revelation 3, verse 2, it gives us some hope. And it, it says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. 
It's a word of encouragement. You know, he's given us this bad news of, man, you guys look alive, but you're really dead. And then as you get a little bit farther in that passage, it says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. That gives us hope that we can still experience God if we haven't experienced him yet. It's still in there. I know that you love me, still recovering, not a competition, a bunch of branches in the same vine. Let's go back to the simplicity. So right now, we don't normally sing a song after, but I just wanted to give y'all a moment if you need a moment with God. I don't care what you do. You can go to the altar. You can just have your time in your seat. But just take advantage of this moment. Pray. Meditate. Do whatever you want to do. But just remember that you don't need pastors to give you God, that you can experience God right here yourself no matter where you are. You don't need Moses. You can walk straight up that mountain. So...